Dr. Lisa Levine, the chief executive officer for an organization called the Maven Project. A really cool initiative. The Maven Project's core thrust is to leverage the clinical expertise of specialists who have capacity in their schedules, retired, uh, or otherwise just want to put their skills and talents to good use in supporting specialty-based functions to the underserved. Dr. Levine's devoted over 18 years in, in healthcare strategy and consulting to the advancement of provider alignment and engagement. This was a really, really interesting discussion. Uh, I have a lot of optimism that the trail Dr. Levine and the Maven Project have been blazing can be instructive to all of us as we think about better specialty access across the country, but particularly in these communities. Dr. Levine, thank you uh, so much for uh, taking some time to uh, spend with us on the Medicaid Transformation Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, let, let's start just by uh, talking a little bit about the MAVEN Project. The MAVEN Project is a telehealth nonprofit that supports primary care providers working around the country, delivering really exceptional comprehensive care to vulnerable populations, the uninsured and the Medicaid-covered patients via telehealth technology. We were founded by Dr. Lori Green, who is a practicing OBGYN in San Francisco and a public health commissioner, while she was the president of the Harvard Medical School Alumni Association. She envisioned a model where we could leverage volunteer physicians and couple that with telehealth to connect to underserved communities and close the gaps on access to care. So we could recruit and retain a core of really experienced volunteer physicians that represent 48 clinical specialties from top tier medical school alumni associations. And they work closely with primary care providers in the safety net clinic to educate, advise, and really enhance in-place care capacity. So we know that insurance and geographic location, both rural and urban, access to trained specialists and other factors are really having a direct impact on the health and well-being of communities around this nation. And we are a solution to this crisis. So the foundation of our work is really a personalized high-touch program with three core strategies that really enhance local care while supporting providers personally and professionally. So we provide clinical consults between a primary care provider and a safety net clinic and one of our experienced volunteers. They can connect via video, audio, they can do secure email or even messaging. And the goal here is to answer questions about singular cases or general population health approaches to some of the patients that they're caring for. And we are able to provide timely answers to questions at hand. The second one is educational sessions. So we provide live didactics around a variety of topics that are really geared towards what frontline primary care providers need and want to know about 150 different clinical topics. We currently have a weekly COVID series that is ongoing, that is really well attended, and it's delivered by an infectious disease epidemiologist and supported by a panel of other specialists like pulmonary critical care medicine, psychiatry, OBGYN. They really help augment a question and answer session that actually occurs live via a chat and live after the presentation as well. But the goal is to increase the knowledge capacity at the front lines and give frontline providers what they need to know about specific topics. So other examples are kind of the ABCs of EKGs, uh, the 101 of rheumatoid arthritis, managing 
depression in teenagers, opioid management, and the list goes on. And the third service offering we provide is one-on-one -on -one mentoring. This is done both at the primary care provider level and at the medical clinical leadership level. So we pair our volunteers on a one-on-one -on -one basis up with an independent, confidential, non-judgmental source of support that gives the frontline primary care provider or the clinical leader a source of professional and personal support to get their questions answered. The goal here is to help provide um, resources, but also really enhance the wellness and decrease the burnout of those at the front lines and those managing clinics. From our perspective, we really provide a critical lifeline for sustainable specialty care in communities that face barriers to accessing it. Our consults enable care to remain local and optimize nearly 70% of the time. So we are able to avoid referrals for patients to specialists where access is so limited and delayed and keep the patient's care local, managing conditions sooner. Disease progression and burden are limited and managed earlier, avoiding emergency room visits, hospitalizations, and medical expenses are reduced. We're able to both support the frontline caregivers, but also optimize the communities that they care for. And one last thing about our model. So we are currently supported by grants, philanthropy, and some operating support from clinics who are able to contribute. And this is what limits or enables us to scale and grow. It's unique in the sense that all parties that participate kind of win. And that's unique in many ways in healthcare. So our volunteer doctors absolutely love volunteering. Many of them are in later stages of their careers. They all have active licenses. We cover them for malpractice insurance and credential them to be part of our volunteer corps, but they love giving back and they love flexing those muscles that they've developed their whole careers. And they love connecting with our clinic provider partners. Our, the primary care providers and the clinics that we're working with, their nurse practitioners, their physician assistants, and their physicians, they absolutely love connecting with our volunteers because they're so seasoned and experienced, but also really approachable. And the patients absolutely benefit by having their care optimized locally sooner and earlier. So really the model is all parties that contribute win. It's addressing a fundamental infrastructure gap we have in these communities. It's the, the wait time for referrals to a nephrologist, an endocrinologist, a mental health professional. Talk, Dr. Levine, a little bit about the formation of the MAVEN project. When was it founded and what was the core thing that the progenitors of, of the project were trying to solve yeah. for? So around 2014, when Dr. Lori Green, our founder, was the president of the Harvard Medical School Alumni Association, she was charged with engaging the alumni in meaningful work, and yet was keenly aware of this being a couple years past the passage of the Affordable Care Act, where we really increased health insurance coverage for many Americans, but hadn't necessarily addressed the increasing access to care. And so she was running a meeting one day and saw all of these amazing doctors sitting in front of her across various specialties at various stages of their careers. And the light bulb went off, which was, could we actually transport the amazing doctors sitting in the room in front of her at this alumni meeting at Harvard with the communities that really need access to the specialty sitting in the room in front of her? And telehealth was just in its infancy. And that's where kind of proof of concept started, which was can we find doctors that are interested in volunteering their time and expertise? The volunteers really are recently retired 
physicians working part-time, physicians working full-time in practice, and physicians working in industry, but all with an active license? Can we find safety net clinics that really have an interest and a need and willingness to connect with our physician volunteers? Can we find some technology that could bridge the two parties? And can we find some funding that would get this started? So the answer to each one was yes. And that's how we began our pilots kind of proof of concept. We then, we piloted in two states, in California and Massachusetts, took those learnings, refined them, and then the services that, we that I just described are what we do now and how we've taken those learnings and begun to scale our operations so that our impact expands across the country. And what markets are you guys operating uh, in right now? And what are the determinants that, that help dictate prioritizing a new market? We are currently working in both urban and rural markets. We find that for the uninsured and for the Medicaid population, even in an urban environment, access can be severely limited, even at the footsteps of some large academic medical centers. We are working in nine or 10 states right now, and places that we are prioritizing are both expanding our current footprint in states where we are, so we, we can have a larger regional expansion, but also looking at communities that are really struggling with access to specialty care, places that didn't take Medicaid expansion, and places particularly hit hard right now with COVID and how they're able to manage or resource their communities at need. Certainly a lot of the challenges for this population that we're talking about have just been magnified with COVID. And we believe that this virtual multi-specialty group practice that we bring really can be a game changer for many communities around the country. One of the things we, we've spent a lot of time doing in the Medicaid Transformation Project is looking for these digital solutions that can really plug in and attach to a comprehensive care model or a disease-specific care model. Are there other commercial entities that you've seen in the market where you've kind of thought, okay, right line of thinking, definitely going in the right direction, or do you think we've just totally undercapitalized those resources and at the moment this, this kind of infrastructure is, is really, you know, kind of beholden, isn't the right word, but I'll use it, beholden to philanthropy and, and contributions from well-intended donors. There are other players on the market, particularly in some of the for-profit space, but also in the nonprofit space, that may be tackling a piece of what we're doing. Okay. So answering immediate questions or providing some education. But in our opinion, I think a couple things. The services that we offer are on a spectrum and a continuum of really education and support and it's done at an individual level and at a personalized level and with a relationship so that you can go back time and time again and build on what you've learned from our volunteers. The other piece is that collectively, this creates a learning environment that enables sustainable change, but also raises the knowledge capacity at a lot kind of enduring level. And Medicine, at least from my opinion, is an art and a science. So I think there are a lot of resources out there that enable you to capture the science of medicine. You can go online and look up on online programs. How do I manage hypertension? You might get a 130 page printout, but it doesn't tell you how do I manage this patient here that's homeless, that has type two diabetes, hepatitis C and three other things. That's where this, the art of medicine comes in and the ability to connect with people that have spent decades of their career 
in their respective specialties like we have because we are able to marry that art and science of medicine together. I think it creates a unique offering that creates an enormous value. And what we know and what we've learned and has been studied from the MAVEN project is what we call the, the multiplier effect. So we had an amazing pro bono um, consulting relationship with McKinsey and company that provided a kind of strategic planning framework for us. And they helped us frame what we call the multiplier effect, which is for one consult or you know, participation in education, we're able to provide tools and learnings to frontline primary care providers that enable them kind of clinical pearls to apply them to many subsequent patients. So they quantified it up to 19 additional patients benefit both directly and indirectly from one consult as a result of this. That is on the conservative side. We've had individuals come to us and say almost 20% of my population is now benefiting from clinical pearls that you've shared in the you know, in the 15 minutes I spent with your volunteer, it was time really well spent. Um, but that multiplier effect creates enduring impact on both the provider and the confidence and how they manage all their patients and on the health outcomes of all the patients in the communities that they care for. So coming back to your question around the resourcing, it is our hope that the funding for the MAVEN project becomes supported by larger scale entities at the sort of policy level at the federal level, because we do believe and know that the outcomes and impact we are making are significant, enduring, and create an enormous value for everyone. In addition, we can talk about the layering in of COVID and how that's playing a role, but the provider workforce that we are using is taking a supply that is decreasing and extremely well knowledgeable and we are reintroducing them. We are actually reinserting them in the workforce in a way that's meaningful and scalable across the country and very efficiently scalable. Well, I love the concept um, of, a, of a multiplier effect. You're also enabling a, a greater proficiency with the infrastructure that does exist in those communities. What is the distinction between the work you do in a rural community versus an urban community and distinctions in how you engage those two different types of uh, workforces? I think the biggest distinction between, from, between a rural and an urban community is the distance between physical hands-on access for patient populations. So the, the gaps in access to care are magnified when physical distance is also a factor. So if you're in an urban environment and the academic medical center won't see you because of your insurance status, you could show up in the emergency room and be seen if you can walk there or get there. Whereas if the closest place to get hands-on care is multiple hours away, the need for local providers to really try to anchor in and hone in on an optimizing care, I think becomes a little bit more focused. But the, the need is still the same, ultimately, which is how do we, regardless of location, optimize patient's care? Because we know even if it's down the street or four hours away, that it, a specialty visit is time away from home, time out of work, you know, child care, transportation, out-of-pocket funds. And for this population, it's significant delays, which is disease progression. It is also with COVID and with clinics reopening, the delays are even larger because access is further limited in these specialty clinics. So the, the focus is still how do we optimize care as much as possible 
locally? And how do we then right size and send the right patients out to the in-person appointments so that we're clearing the way for those that truly need hands-on care and pulling back and keeping care local as much as possible for those that don't need it? There's these three strategies, the clinical consults, the education, the one-on-one -on -one mentoring. Under, under bucket one, under the clinical consults, yeah. does that tend to be just clinician to clinician or do, do your clinician colleagues ever engage directly with a patient at home or in some other setting? Our work right now focuses on the provider to provider interaction. We find that it's really time efficient for these medical or clinical consults a consult that's live, so video or audio, could be as short as one or two minutes. It could be anything like help me validate this care plan, help me, you know, evaluate dosing of a drug or different tests. Should I be, you know, thinking about ordering or different differential diagnosis? Or it can be much more lengthy if it's help me really think about the, you know, the complexity of this disease layered in on everything else. What should I be thinking about for plan A, B, and C for this patient, given these are the resources locally to this patient based on socioeconomic status, based on environmental, geography, et cetera. So it's really helping to create meaningful solutions locally where they're needed. On those solutions, talk just a little bit about where you may have holes or gaps or places where, where you think we are just totally under-resourced as a country. But how do you approach behavioral health, addiction, uh, depression, or, or social factors that, that I know we would agree are, are so important to a person's overall health, but also have big gaps. Do you work in those spaces as well? Our clinical specialties range from adult to pediatric, medical and surgical subspecialties, including primary care disciplines and addiction medicine, psychiatry, and the list goes on. Everything from transgender endocrinology, both adult and pediatric, to wound care, to endocrinology, generically speaking, and many, many other specialties. Certainly nationally, I can tell you that our experience, and it shouldn't come as a surprise, is, you know, we are struggling with addiction medicine specialists, point blank around the country. Yeah. And, and within addiction medicine, what each provider is able or licensed to do varies. So prescribing certain medications really varies across addiction medicine specialists, for example, and helping to manage opioid addiction, just as one example. So addiction medicine would be one example of where I think just as a nation, we struggle with overall a, a, a supply shortage. Yeah. We currently have volunteers that represent psychiatry, addiction medicine, pain management, and the like. What generally our volunteers do is they advise. So they might advise on validation of care plan. They might advise on medication management. They might advise on testing. They might advise on differential diagnosis. They aren't doing the one-on-one -on -one counseling with the patient that is an ongoing recurring kind of relationship, but they are advising the primary care providers on how to manage and how to think about these patients. And it also might be, how do I manage this patient with uh, bipolar disorder and three other you know, diseases that have medications? And how do, how do I think about the interaction of those? And so it's a lot of advice. It's a lot of both validating care plans, helping to augment care plans, and then also helping to determine like effective triage as well. 
a presentation you did last year about telehealth secrets, you referenced a 20-year life expectancy gap, which I've come to call the, the death gap, which is ripped off from Dr. David Ansel, a physician here in Chicago. Yeah. Talk just a bit about the, the telehealth capacity to close that death gap. Uh, have you been able to see a causal link in certain communities where you've been a strong contributor into closing those gaps based on the model that you bring to FQHCs or other community-based providers? Yeah, I mean, that statistic is shocking to many that Incredible. that are even intimately involved in healthcare often, I find. Just to magnify that a little bit more, I presented at a national conference with one of our free clinic partners from Miami, and they described within a one-mile radius a 15-year life expectancy gap between the wealthy and the poor, within one mile. Mm -hmm. So we are partnering with clinics that are looking to close that gap. Telehealth has the capacity to, to really close the gaps on access to care for vulnerable populations and is ideally suited to reach the underserved. So telehealth can really create access and support where it did not exist before while maintaining physical distance, thereby extending the reach of care where it's needed most. So for years, I think telehealth has been seen as a way of democratizing medicine by driving down costs, increasing access to care and making healthcare delivery more efficient, but the uptake has been on the slower side until COVID. Necessity has been the great accelerator of, of innovation and of adoption. Some of the most critical challenges that patients and primary care providers face and is magnified by COVID are finding availability, access, and answers. And telehealth can help with all of these challenges. So geographies, social determinants of health, and other factors that drive gaps in access to care needed to manage care are able to be managed earlier and sooner by virtually bringing in resources. So in my opinion, telehealth enables right-sizing of where and how care can be accessed by connecting, in our model at least, frontline primary care providers to expert guidance, as well as helping them manage and treat chronic and complex conditions virtually to help ensure patients are getting the right care at the right time while effectively and efficiently deploying healthcare resources that are so limited. Telehealth also has the ability to really help empower and stabilize the provider workforce that's so fragile. COVID has impacted that as well, but the burnout that has already been so paramount in the provider workforce can really be supported through virtual networks like ours. You hit on COVID. Talk just a little bit about how this environment has really shaped the work and what kind of uptake have you seen and if tomorrow an FDA-approved evidence-based vaccine fell from the sky and we got it done at scale and the whole COVID thing just went away. Does this endure at this point or, or do you think there's a, there's a penchant to go back to the way things were? I do not think we're going to go back to how care was delivered pre-COVID. I think we're going to likely land on some hybrid model of virtual care and in-person care. But going back to what has COVID meant for the MAVEN project and how have we supported our clinic partners? So the first thing we recognize with the pandemic of COVID is really maintaining core programming uninterrupted is really has been key and paramount for our clinic partners. So both being able to provide resources for COVID-related questions 
as much as non-COVID related questions, how do I manage my patient from home, given that I don't want them coming in the clinic, I wanna protect the patients and I wanna protect my providers, has been first and foremost for us. So how do we maintain all of our clinical consultative support, all of our, you know, the mentoring and the education sessions. Also understanding how our clinics are functioning right now has been key. So telehealth for most of our, the majority of our clinic partners, actually means phone telehealth. They are not visualizing the patients. And the structure of a clinic looks very different right now. The providers are dispersed. Many of them are working from home remotely. Clinicians are doing shift work in their clinics to not overlap as much with each other. And we're having fewer patients come in the clinic. So what does that mean? Providers historically have felt, even when they're working together, isolated. It's kind of a ironic feeling of working alone together. But what we bring in is this network of people you can tap into at any moment in time. So understanding that the, the clinics are dispersed now with providers is much more of a call to reaching out for help because you don't have the, the provider next door to just knock on the door and go ask for help. This is also magnified for more junior providers. But what we've done is we've also added in some other resources. So I referenced before, like a weekly COVID really rich summarizes everything you need and want to know as a frontline primary care provider in an ambulatory care practice around COVID with a multidisciplinary really panel that can answer questions. We've also done educational sessions led by our psychiatrists on how to manage anxiety and stress for you, your patients, your clinic during a public health crisis. We've also lined up one-on-one -on -one mentoring sessions with psychiatrists for creating strategies for managing stress during this time. We've also started to develop um, or respond to our clinic needs where they're telling us, look, I, I not only would love some tips and tools on how to effectively manage my diabetic patients, but I want it from the lens of how do I do it remotely? So we actually are bringing together adult and pediatric endocrinologists with clinics, and they are discussing how do we optimize our diabetics' health and well-being while being virtually physically separated. What resources do the patients have and how do we use those in ways to really optimize their health and well-being? And the last piece is we recognize that we are in a, in a position to really aggregate physicians at a national level. So we've been doing that for COVID and trying to pair them up at state or national levels. We're trying to meet the immediate needs of our clinics in those ways. But what we also know is occurring is what we call the second surge, which is not the second acute phase of COVID. Pre-COVID, about 98 million people that are either covered by Medicaid or uninsured. We know that with COVID, the unemployment rate has skyrocketed. So the number of people that are gonna be in that pool is largely increased. We also know with COVID that we have, we have delayed care. We have said, don't come in, stay home. So conditions, people are getting sicker, right? Conditions are progressing. So we've got a larger population that's sicker We've got a workforce that was at a baseline burned out and stressed that we've now added concern about PPE, concern about getting COVID. Some of them are getting COVID. Some of them have actually died and people are retiring earlier. So we have a workforce that's shrinking. And then at the community health center or at the safety net clinic level, they generally operate at razor thin margins and those are just being deteriorated. So the ability for them to support there's current staff, they're, you know, furloughing, laying off staff with yet an, an impending increase in demand, 
puts the system at a greater imbalance. And for us, we feel like it's really a place where we can come and help expand capacity because the clinics are going to need this more and more as we start to even slowly open up. What are the kinds of policy impediments you've encountered both you know, pre-COVID or even now that would help to advance the work were they removed? And, and I guess that's a, a segue into a very similar question, which is what, what are the things we really need to be doing or focused on over the next few months prior to a wave two in the, in the fall, winter? What is getting in the way of this on the tech side or or the practice side that you would you'd love to just wave a wand and, and yeah. dispense with. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there's yeah. nothing, but there's nothing. No, <laughs> I would love to wave. I would love to wave a wand in a lot of different places, but actually, I would probably focus it on policy payers and providers. So, starting with the policy, certainly some of the regulations that have been lifted during this emergency order have made it much easier to connect that have taken away some of the barriers that have kept people, providers and patients alike from connecting. In addition, at the policy level, looking at reimbursement and funding for solutions that create sustainable change, I think are really important to look at. So the Maven Project is an example, but this is where you can close health equity gaps through a really sustainable solution that regardless of um, how the clinic structure ultimately lands, whether it's you know, 50% telehealth, 50% in person, our model still stands that you can access us anywhere, when you need it, where you need it, how you need it, that really creates that value. It creates a, a benefit to the patients from a health outcomes, from a cost savings, et cetera. The second piece is on the payers, that there's significant value with referrals saved, almost 100% of our consults provide education that can be applied to future, you know, future cases, we're able 75% of the time to like augment a care plan. So give the primary care provider some additional tools that they can use to really enhance that plan of care for the patient. And so I hope that the payers are able to see the value and align reimbursement. For example, the communities that we work with, the, their primary lifeline for telehealth is the phone. So aligning reimbursement and keeping that in play after this emergency order, I think is really important. Then on the provider side, Adoption's been really hard on the operational side for clinicians, for clinics. And so I hope that being open and willing to use telehealth as a way of connecting, both as a way of helping them as providers, helping the clinics produce better health outcomes and helping the communities achieve better health is viewed as a win-win-win for everyone. I hope that the operations are able in each clinic to adapt so that telehealth can be a sustainable model when integrated with in-person access to, I hope the providers are able to tap into telehealth for, with a program like ours to gain knowledge, that they're able to ask those questions they want so that they can strengthen their plans of care with their patients. And I hope that they use models like ours to help decrease their isolation and burnout, which is just at such a high level to begin with, that we believe that providing this kind of virtual, again, multi-specialty group practice and source of support is really essential to, to providing what each provider needs for their own personal and professional stability and development. You made a point under the, uh, the payer comment a moment ago around statistics. As you're having discussions with those entities that hold the risk, whether it was the state or a managed care organization, 
what are the kinds of data that you're gathering and, and what are the points you really try to advance that demonstrate that the reimbursement for the support of this type of model ultimately is accretive to their, their ambitions? So I would say the, the statistic that seems to stand out the most is that nearly 70% of the time when a primary care provider consults with one of our volunteers, we are actually able to avoid a referral to an external specialist where it would have been, where the patient would have been sent out ordinarily. Because we know access is limited to begin with, that this, this is just um, progressing disease causing significant delays. We also hear that with the concern of going into clinical practices right now with COVID, that even if a patient has a strong relationship with their primary care provider and they're saying, we really think you need to see a cardiologist, they're afraid. And so many of them, even if they do have an appointment in a couple of months, are scared and may not, may not go. So how do we optimize the care locally? This is one way to do it. Also, certainly the multiplier effect where one consult really can produce an impact on up to 19 additional patients with a really time-efficient, time-effective consult. You know, almost 75% of the time, the consults really are able to augment treatment plans. We also share that our volunteers are pretty amazing. So on a scale of one to five, they get like a, almost a 4.9 out of five. I mean, they're just like super rock stars and they are so experienced, but so generous in their time and willingness. And when they help, they help, but they teach while they're helping. So that the question that somebody asks one time, likely they're given pearls that they're able to apply to other patients. And then also with McKinsey's partnership, we've been able to quantify some of the cost savings potential of these consults, which is significant. So in addition to kind of expanding care capacity and bandwidth, we're able to help optimize care, save costs, save stress and burden on the entire system, and also enable providers to work at the top of their license, kind of with this virtual tool in their toolbox. Earlier in the discussion, you elegantly hit on the fragility of the workforce. And, and in my mind, that kind of comes from two places. One was the, the burnout dynamic fatigue, the notion that we are overburdening our physician workforce and that the, the work that you're doing is, is a bit of a bomb to that. The other component to this that I, I think about in terms of fragility is that we just don't have enough PCPs and the economics yep. are so imbalanced between yep. PCPs and other specialists. How much time have you spent thinking about the future of the primary care physician and the ways in which your model is either could be at risk by that or, or the model begins to augment that or can move into other you know, mid-level practitioners, other types of clinically trained individuals continue to extend this capacity you've created. When we say PCP, for us, it's primary care provider. So the okay, PCPs well, that we're working with, some of them are doctors, but a lot of them are nurse practitioners and physician right. assistants. And we are seeing the, the primary care providers, and there are even some other providers that are sometimes serving in the role of primary care provider in these safety net clinics around the country. So the training of each of those groups is somewhat different. And the needs of each of those providers is different depending on their training, their licensure, but also depending on their tenure in clinical practice. So we're seeing that a lot of the safety net clinics are recruiting people right out of 
school or training. And so their capacity to feel confident that they've seen, you know, a thousand complicated type two diabetics is far smaller than either a primary care provider we have that can advise or an endocrinologist that we have that can advise. So for us, our goal is to help increase the knowledge capacity of all those at the front lines through our resources. We believe that the ratios of MD, DO to NPPA are going to continue to evolve, but in many ways that will likely necessitate more support by us. We also see that the clinics that we work with struggle with this terrible cycle of recruitment and retention of providers. And we believe that programs like ours, in particular, the mentoring program is a real recruitment tactic, which is come on in and join us, but we're not going to set you on your feet to just run free. It's pretty scary to start your first job alone, but we're going to pair you up with a mentor, someone that's that's your go-to person that's not here in the clinic, you can feel safe asking those questions that you might feel like you could be judged on in your role here in this clinic. But we think that those are some of the tools that you can use to really um, stabilize and enhance the, the capacity and the workforce at the front lines of the safety net clinics around the country. So the mentoring relationships that we have are some of the richest relationships we've seen. These are, you know, twice a month they meet virtually through our telehealth platform. And they talk about anything from clinical cases to skills building to strategies for how do I manage this, that, and the other in the clinic. And it's really a way to empower and coach in a safe environment clinicians around the country. Lisa, if, if I'm a physician or clinician and I'm listening yeah. to this right now and I'm, yeah. depending on where, how I might be practicing, I'm thinking to myself either oh my gosh, this is great because every referral I make it takes three to four weeks for that patient to see somebody. Or I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is great. I have a bunch of extra time and I would love to volunteer. How do they engage you as, a, as either a volunteer, a clinician, or a partner to work with in a community? If you go to mavenproject.org, there are opportunities listed there for both if you're a clinic and interested, or a, a clinical partner, like a health plan, interested in partnering with us. If you're a physician looking to volunteer, or if you're a philanthropic supporter or a grant maker um, and interested in helping in that capacity, there is also information there as well. And so our website is really the hub for all of those parties. And, and how do people make contributions to you? Is it the same website? What's the, what's the quick way if, if somebody's listening to this, uh, which they all will, by the way, Lisa, you're just going to get That's right. That's right. Of, That's right. Uh, um, contributions. So, how do people do that? Uh, if you go to mavenproject.org, there's a donate button right at the top. And there's information on how you can either um, make an online, you know, credit card gift or mail in a, a check or other form. But you know, our ability to meet the increasing demand is somewhat limited by our capacity to grow, which is dependent on funds. So um, the generosity of grantors and philanthropic support is significant. And we believe we're making a significant difference in the communities around this country. And our, again, our job is not done until we're in every place that needs us. Here's what I'll say to our, our, our listening colleagues. Um, hop online and make a contribution. We would encourage you to do that. Lisa, I think the work you're doing is so incredible. I think you guys leading the way here is so uh, significant. And I, you know, I, for one, will just express my gratitude to you, your colleagues, and your, your volunteer 
physicians and clinicians for uh, the time, blood, sweat, and tears you put into this. Well, thank you. And thank you for this opportunity. We hope that through this, more individuals, organizations, and entities reach out to us so that we can partner. We will be a delighted co-conspirator in facilitating that when we can. Dr. Lisa Levine, thank you for the time, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, catching up again and staying apprised of the work you're doing. Thank you so very much.